If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and my guest in this episode is April Dunford. April is a legend in the product marketing world. She's an executive consultant, speaker, and author who helps tech companies make complicated products easy for customers to understand and love. She's a globally recognized expert in positioning and market strategy. She's the author of the book, Obviously Awesome, How to Stand Out in Noisy and Crowded Markets, which I highly recommend that you read. Now, April's expertise is built from 25 years as an operating executive across a series of seven successful technology startups and three global tech giants. She's personally launched 16 products as an executive and consulted on the launch of dozens more, accounting for many, many billions in revenue. In short, she's seen it all. In this conversation, we go deep on positioning for products and services, strategy and market building. I especially love two stories that she shared, one about Seth Godin that she's never told before, and also one about how one of the companies she worked on executed a positioning strategy, which led to a 40x revenue growth in an 18-month period, which is just bananas. If you have an offering that you're putting into the world, and in particular, if you need to adjust your business positioning to adapt to the COVID-19 pandemic, you need to listen to this. So without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with April Dunford. Let's do this thing. Okay, so officially, April, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's so good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we're, we're recording this in April 2020 in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. We were just having, having a joke about like how you, how, you know, how we prep for this uh, accidentally <laughs> in our cases. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you were just talking about how you, you, you set up your gym and I, I was wondering, yeah, I know you're a big runner. Yeah. Um, how is that? Like, how have you, how are you finding quarantine? Like what, how is it shifting how you do what you do or like how's life for you right oh now? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, a bunch of things happened. So one thing was, I got sick right at the beginning of it with, I don't know, but presumptive positive COVID. So first of all, I got the darn thing. Yeah. So I was super sick for four weeks and, uh, and it kind of settled into my lungs and I got sort of walking pneumonia, like not so bad that I had to go to the hospital. Thank goodness. Um, but, but first of all, I'm glad you're okay. So, and so I, but I, like it hit me in the lungs and I was really sick And so I couldn't run for a month. And that has, that has been terrible. (laughs) Like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, so terrible. (laughs) Like, there's no other word. It It sucks. It just sucks. (laughs) And so because I haven't run for a month, um, I'm having to be really careful about how I ramp my mileage back up. And then I got this thing that runners get with your feet if you overtrain uh, it's called plantar fasciitis. If you're a runner, you'll know what it. You'll know uh, what it is. It is I, I used to do triathlons, and I had this for like a okay. year. I am so sorry. Yeah, it's like it's like an annoyance injury. Anyways, I'm trying to ramp my mileage back up, and I get this plantar fasciitis, and I'm like, oh, this is so annoying. I haven't run for a month, and now it's the, I got this stupid foot thing. And I talked to my doctor, and you know what my doctor said? She said that's a working from home injury. I'm like what the heck? And she's like, you know what you got planted? She's like, you've got really high arches and I bet you haven't worn shoes for a month. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Huh. She's like sock foot walking around your house 24 seven, totally give you plantar fasciitis. I'm like, Oh my God, I've got what I thought was a running <laughs> injury and I haven't run for a month. And I'm like, Oh, so now I'm literally walking around my house with my shoes on. It's the stupidest thing. 
Uh, are you sleeping with the boot? No, I'm not. And I'm not. But it hasn't got that bad. Oh my god! I hope okay, I don't good. Because that's that's. I hope like, you, I hope it does not go there. That was oh, the worst. So, like I'm icing it. I'm stretching it. I'm rolling the tennis ball. I'm doing all that shit that you do. Plus, I'm walking around the house in my shoes. But yeah, no, the the change like. But like I'm used to doing a lot of flying around and working with clients one on one, so I've switched everything yeah. to virtual, and that's actually been a a smoother transition than I thought it was going to be. And I would say the the biggest change, like I feel sorry for my kids; they're teenagers, and this sucks for teenagers. Like you, being a teenager and not being able to see your friends is pretty terrible. Yeah. How how old are they? They're like thirteen mm-hmm. and sixteen. Oh yeah, and that's so, that's a tough time for well, that. Well, the 13-year-old, he's kind of all on Discord all day with his friends anyway. So I mean, they they were used to kind of communicating virtually, but my 16-year-old, she's more bummed out about it. But so that's a big change having the kids in the house all day. But otherwise, um, you know, once I got over being sick with the darn thing, uh it it hasn't been like we're super fortunate. Like it hasn't been a big deal thing here it's more just stressful worrying about people you know like you're worried about your parents Mm. and you're not entirely healthy family members and stuff like that is super stressful yeah no i hear you on that before we get into the main topic your work which is positioning and we'll we'll be talking a lot about that today um i was hoping you could share a story with it was a story you told about professional maturity and the, story, and the, and the evolution you yeah. went through personally. And I'm curious, could you just share that story with our listeners and, and what that actually shows up like for you now? Yeah, professional maturity. I tell this story a lot because um, the guy that I heard that phrase from, you know, we, we talk about it and laugh about it now. But um, yeah, so early in my career, I uh, I got this job. I had worked mainly at startups, but I was working for a startup. We got acquired. I ended up at IBM and, uh, and I was fixing to get a promotion actually. And so I was a hotshot in my group and we were doing a bunch of really cool stuff. And, uh, and I had this boss who was like longtime IBM or like anybody senior at IBM has been there like a hundred years. So, you know, so I, but I was a hot shot and I didn't know anything. His, his blood is blue. Yeah, now. no, he actually, he's, a, he's one of the few I know that he was a rock star and he ended up leaving and going to Google and he ran Google Europe for a whole bunch of years. But anyways, he, so he was a cool guy, but anyway, so he's my boss and I was fixing for a promotion and I didn't get it. And so the, mm. the guy was giving me this big speech and I was like, well, I don't get why I didn't get it. Like I, I work so good and I delivered on my things and, you know, all my stuff is going really good. And I was having this big argument with him, which, you know, in itself shows it shows that I didn't <laughs> I was doing the wrong thing. <laughs> but anyway, so we had this big argument with him and his his reasoning was he said, he said, look, I don't know how to explain this to you, but reason you're not getting promoted is you just lack a certain level of professional maturity. And that just pissed me off. Like I was so mad. I was like, what the heck is that? You can't even explain it. Like what, like what does that mean? Professional maturity. And he's like, it's just a thing that you get from experience. He says, I don't think it has to do with your skill at doing the job. I think it has to do with your skill at managing all the people around you, including managing me. And I was like, that's mm. just stupid. <laughs> I was so mad. 
And then, and then, uh, and then later I did, I did get a promotion. And in fact, I, I ended up leaving IBM and I went to another startup and, and we grew really fast and we got acquired or whatever. And then fast forward, I end up at IBM again. And so my second, <laughs> my second tour of duty at IBM, uh, I'm at headquarters and I got this fancy job and I'm, and I'm sort of an executive second time around. And, uh, and anyways, I got this hot shot on my team and, and she's really good. She's amazing. She does amazing job at it, but she's a bit of a loose cannon. And, and she's kind of running around doing a bunch of stuff without sort of thinking about how does it impact things outside of our group and everything's really political at IBM. And so, you, you know, she's not really thinking about this bigger picture. She's just running around trying to do a quote unquote good job. Right. Which is, mm. and so it came time for her to, to do a review and she thought she was getting a promotion. <laughs> and I was like, Oh boy, there we go. For the promotion. And, I, and, I, and I had to try to explain it. And there I was sitting there and I was like, Oh shit. She actually just lacks professional maturity. <laughs> I, was like, I don't know how to explain what this thing is. And so it's funny how many conversations I've had about that since then and and that there is this thing that you get when you realize that being senior is not just about being good at the job it's about being good at working things in the company which is a totally different Mm. thing and 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 i don't know how to describe it without putting this thing on it professional maturity yeah, so that that mm. guy, you know, and then I went back to that guy because he was still at IBM, and I went back and I was like, "Oh, geez, I, let me tell you the story." <laughs> he was laughing at me. You're like, you're gonna love yeah, this. He was laughing at me because <laughs> it had come full circle, and I was trying to explain to someone junior that they weren't ready to get promoted, and and part of the reason was that like this whole this whole concept in startups we don't think about this much, but it is so relevant. Like nobody talks about it, but it's so relevant. Like your ability to manage your boss is the difference between being junior and being the VP. And it's it's almost more than your ability to manage to, to assemble and manage the work on your team is being able to manage your boss. Yet we never talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard anybody talk about it. Like say, say more about well, that. <laughs> so, you know, as the vice president of marketing in particular, you here's how it works in a startup. First of all, you're generally joining a team where there's at least three people that have been there since the beginning of the company. There's probably a couple of co-founders, probably senior employee or two that's been there right from the beginning. Vice president of marketing, you don't hire that right out of the gate, right? That's a thing that you hire later when you're getting ready to scale. So you show up, you're the brand new vice president of marketing, and you're looking around and you need to do a bunch of stuff. First of all, there isn't a single person on the executive team that knows shit about what you do. Like they know nothing. That's why they hired you. If they knew what they were doing, they wouldn't have to hire you. So they don't know anything about marketing. You come in and you got to do a bunch of stuff. Now, people, marketing is this funny thing. People have been on the receiving end of marketing Mm -hmm. since they were babies. So they think because I've Mm -hmm. seen marketing and absorbed marketing, therefore, I have the right to have an opinion about how marketing gets done. (laughs) So one of the biggest skills you got to have to be successful VP of marketing is to come in and manage folks on the executive team and bring them along on a little journey that says, you know what? 
what's the goal? Let's all agree on the goal. So first we got to get agreement on mm-hmm. goal. This is the goal. Okay, good. Now most people don't even do that. If you if you lack the mature, professional maturity, you'd just be like, okay, I'm just going to go running at this thing. And then later you'd find out, oh, geez, my idea of the goal and your idea of the goal were actually slightly misaligned. Therefore, I was never going to be successful. So first thing is we're going to get alignment on the goal. Are we all agreed on the goal? Let's all agree on the goal. Okay, good. We agreed on the goal. Then it's like, okay, we got different choices in terms of pathways to get to the goal. And here's -hmm. what the different pathways are. And here's why I'm choosing one of those. And you do all this before you do anything. (laughs) You don't look the pinky, right? And in order to be smart enough to have that conversation and win, there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to happen before that. Like, you know, like for me, I would usually do like 30, 40 customer interviews before I could even have that conversation. But being able to manage that so that you don't get this situation, which happens all the time, where the CEO or the, the VP dev or somebody shows up and says, geez, I noticed Apple does this thing in their, in their, in their commercials that looks like this. Shouldn't we be doing that? Or, oh, gee, I noticed this other startup like Uber. They do this thing. Why aren't we doing that? Hey, I noticed everybody else has Facebook ads. Why aren't we doing Facebook ads? And so if you can't explain the whole thought process and the framework that got you to your decision, well, then it's just your opinion versus the other guy's opinion. And he's been there longer than you. So his opinion is better and you're dead. Right. Mm-hmm. So this being able to manage all of that. Whereas when I was junior, I didn't think that was the point. I thought, well, I'm in marketing. I just got to be really good at marketing. Right. <laughs> yeah, I got to run some campaigns. Right, run some campaigns, you know? know how to do email marketing, know how to do all this stuff. I just got to be a hot shot at that. But that's not the same skill set to be an executive. To be an executive, you got to manage all this other stuff, right? You got to manage everybody's expectations. You got to manage, everybody's got to understand. It's not just about doing good work, it's about everybody understand why are you doing what you're doing? Because if they lose confidence in your ability to make those decisions, they're going to make them for you. And that sucks. Mm-hmm. And then you're not the executive. Then yep. you're just junior again with some with a with a different boss. Again. Okay, so let's take a second and just lay a quick foundation conceptually for people who are not already familiar with your work, and then we'll kind of get back into the deep waters and the nuance of this all. So, I, you know, you've you've been very clear that <laughs> positioning is not branding, it's not messaging, no. it's not a whole bunch of other things. So, for someone who's not familiar with your work. What is positioning and why should they care? Yeah. So, you know, positioning is super misunderstood. And so uh, most folks, I think, think about positioning and they get it a little bit confused with things you do with positioning, like messaging or a tagline or whatever. Um, so in my definition of positioning, I, I define it this way. So positioning defines how your product is uniquely qualified to be a leader at delivering something that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. And like, that's a big mouthful (laughs) because positioning consists of a lot of pieces. So you can think of it as basically the fundamental input to everything we do in marketing and sales. Like if I'm going to go run a campaign, the first thing I'm going to say is, well, who's the target audience? And what's our value proposition? Who are we competing against? How do we beat them? It's all that stuff together. And so these are kind of big strategic questions 
that we need to answer in order to be able to build a go-to-market plan, in order to be able to, you know, build out sales programs, marketing programs, and make even strategic decisions about the product. So where does that stuff come from? It's kind of like, but what's, what's the big vexing question? Yeah. And I think I got down this path because, you know, I didn't, I graduated with a degree in systems design engineering and I kind of ended up in marketing. And when I first started running marketing teams, you know, I kept coming across this concept of positioning and I'm like, this is, this sounds pretty important. <laughs> like, in fact, everything we do relies on this. So we should be able to do a really, really good job at this. But every time I looked at, well, how do we actually do it? Like, how do we know? Like, if I have a product that could be positioned as breakfast or, you know, an accompaniment to my hamburger, how do I know which market category I'm in? And there didn't Hmm. seem to be an answer to that. So I spent a Mm -hmm. lot of time trying to figure that out. And so, and, and my work is really all around that. How do we do a methodology for positioning? So I've got something out in the market. I don't know if it's positioned properly. How do I know if it is or it isn't? And if I wanted to, if I decided it was not positioned properly, how do I go about actually fixing it? And that's what, that's mm-hmm. what my stuff is all about. Absolutely. And, and for anyone who is not already, who, who does not already have a copy of April's book, it's great. Please go buy it. Listen okay. to it. Um, I'm, we won't, we won't burn all of our time in this conversation repeating what's already in the book because that's what the book's for. So go read the book and then come back to this conversation. But now that we've got a bit of a foundation here about what positioning is, it seems like, you know, as I was, as I was thinking about this last night, you just said that you know, positioning is really like a core, it's, it's this core input to everything that we do in sales and marketing. And I would say even more broadly than yeah. that, right? If you're thinking about, it really seems like it's actually a strategy level type question. Yeah. And that when we don't get it right, everything else after that is kind of like lipstick on a pig, right? Like you can, you can make a pretty campaign or whatever, but if, you, if it's wrong in the first place, it's just it's garbage in, garbage out, right? Like if the inputs are weak, then it doesn't matter if you're doing, you can be doing flawless marketing and sales execution. But if you are, if you are, are mushy on who's my target market, how would you, how do we win against who? Then it doesn't matter. It doesn't mm. matter. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm curious, it seems like, especially for somebody like a founder at a startup, right, who's got so much invested in, in something, you've, you know, in your book, you talk about sort of the default positioning that we fall into, mm-hmm. often due to just our own historical context with the product, right? You know, we've always thought of the product as email, but no, it's not right. email, it's, it's team collaboration tools or something like that. Um, and it seems like repositioning is a really scary thing for people. Like I heard you and Jonathan Stark, that yeah, you and Jonathan Stark talk about this in terms of it, it almost feels like an identity level oh, threat yeah. because it's so core to who we yeah. are. And I was hoping you could tell me a story about how you've either personally or helped one of your clients work through that fear around repositioning. And, and it just feels like so core to who we are that it's like changing everything about who yeah, we are. As a it company. Is. How do you work like, through and, that? And not everybody successfully navigates that. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Like sometimes the repositioning is, feels like a little fine tuning on a, on a positioning. And those ones tend to work really good. Sometimes the repositioning is like, 
we're a whole different thing. And it's a whole different business. So the, the the first time the the first time I ever was involved in a repositioning, like my very first job at a university, um, I worked for this company, and they had they had basically grown to the size they had had grown to by selling compilers. But the problem was the compiler business was about to go away, so Microsoft was moving into that business and was about to wipe this company out. So they were looking for new products and they were experimenting with a bunch of things. And one of the new products they had was this little database thing. And so up until then, they had sold compilers. So it was a standalone product. You bought it for a hundred bucks. Um, you know, this was so long ago. It was my first job at a university. We literally shipped CDs in a box <laughs> for a hundred bucks. Like we had a little warehouse. <laughs> We switched to digital not long after I joined, but when I got there, there was still a little warehouse with boxes on the shelf. It was hilarious. Um, And so, you know, because of that, the products that they were experimenting with were like that, like little things, techie things that you sold for a hundred bucks. So this database was conceived as that too, except the way we had thought about it was, it was like personal productivity software. The idea was it was going to compete with Excel and it was Excel that you could run SQL queries because everybody really wants to run SQL query, right? <laughs> we're we're taking people, right? And so, um, so we had this idea. So back then, if you wanted a, a, like a database that ran SQL queries, had to run on a server. It was like Oracle. You needed a team of people to even get the thing installed and set up and whatever, and, and you needed somebody to administer it. And we had the idea this was going to be like that, except you could just put it on your PC and it was three click install and it was super easy. You could throw a whole bunch of data in there and do structured query language on it. So it'd be just like Excel, except instead of all that, you know, just be all powerful because I could use SQL yeah. and I could do inner and outer joins. Mm-hmm. Imagine the power. And so, <laughs> Left outer joins. Right, so you still my heart. We were, that, that, that was our whole thing. We're like, everybody wants that, right? So we built this thing and we put it out. And and again, we charged in like a hundred bucks for it. And so we're doing through distribution, right? We don't have a sales team. You you call us, we're order takers. You call us and we send it to you. You fill out the form, we send it to you. Uh, later on, you know, you could download it. But yeah, that was the idea. And so we launched the thing and perhaps unsurprisingly, it was a bit of a flop. <laughs> so it didn't work. And uh, we sold a couple hundred copies of it and that was it. And, uh, and, so, and so I joined and I was junior kid on the marketing team. I was the first and only product marketer. So I'm fresh out of engineering school and they give me this, they give me this shit job that basically they were like, look, um, we're thinking we're going to end a life, this product and you're, job is to go call all the people that have it and find out how mad they're going to be when we shut it off. So, um, so they give me a list of 200 companies and, and customers. And I spent a month and I, and I talked to a hundred of them. So I, I didn't do anything for a month. I just called, called, called. Yeah. And so what, what I found out in that was, um, Pretty much everybody hated the product. Like everybody hated the product. Like basically nobody was using it. I call up and say, Hey, I'm calling from this company, Wacom. Uh, you, you, you bought this thing. And they were like, No, I didn't. <laughs> I was like, Yeah, you did. You did. You bought it on January 20th. You did. And they're like, Oh, yeah, that thing. Yeah, yeah. You said it once. <laughs> All right. Stupid. Yeah, no. 
And so, but then, uh, but then what happened was I made like call number 21. I get a guy and he's really excited. He's like, I love that thing. Oh my gosh, I love it so much. And what he was doing was he had put it on a laptop and given it to his salespeople. He wrote this little program on top so that his salespeople could take orders out in the field, come back and sync it up with their big order database in the, that was Oracle in the office. And before that, they'd have to do that on paper. And so, uh, so I was like, wow, that's weird. That's not what we built that thing for. But okay, weirdo, <laughs> have fun doing that. And I didn't have the heart to tell them we were going to shut it off. So I didn't. And then uh, and then I called a whole bunch of people. And I called 100 people. And five of them were happy out of 100. And And all five of them were doing a similar thing where they had essentially put it on a laptop because you could install it on a laptop because it was really low footprint, wrote a little thing on top so that people could do something in the field, come back and sync it up with an Oracle database. And you, you couldn't do this with any other, any other, any other way. The only reason you could do it is because it had SQL so you could capture transactions. So we ended up having a conversation about this internally, like, you know, it's good news, bad news here, people. <laughs> good news is potentially, if you want to shut this thing off, there's only five guys out there <laughs> that are going to be unhappy. <laughs> but yeah. else, a standard survey would show that most people won't care. Right. If you did a survey, you would have just shut it off. But because we had done essentially customer discovery calls, what we found out was there was this other way to use this product. So this sparked a conversation. Now, imagine if we're going to sell this thing to people to deploy to their sales teams. Like that's a completely different business. I am not going to sell that one at a time anymore. I'm going to sell a hundred at a time, maybe a thousand. Mm-hmm. You're going to call a VP of sales and say, Hey, I'm going to make your whole team. Right. Better. And, right. And I, so I need a salesperson to do that. Like we never had salespeople. We never sold enterprise. We were touchless. Everything we had never sold anything. We had never sold a deal that was more than 200 bucks. And these were going to be, I'm going to go in and sell your whole sales team. And let's say it's a hundred bucks a seat and you got a thousand people. That's a big deal. We had never dealt with purchasing. We had never dealt with legal. Like this is a completely different business. So that conversation went on in the company and we were all a bit like, do we, do we do this? And if we do, how do we Mm. do this? And so that company, I think, was very gutsy to give that a try. So they hired, they did an experiment. So they hired a salesperson, uh, you know, ran a few little campaigns, worked it out. And then when they established that, yeah, we could sell a lot of this thing, they just ran at it really hard. But that was a total shift in, in business strategy, like not just a little thing, like a big, big thing. So how do you get companies to do that? Like some companies, I think, would just look at that and say, we don't want to be in that business. We don't want to have salespeople. We don't want to, we don't want to do that. And they might just walk from that. And and that might be an okay decision, but but you walk away from potentially this really cool business. So I don't know. Like I've done other ones where you know, we were a more general purpose product, and then we decided, no, we're gonna focus down really hard on one segment. And those feel hard too, because often your investors don't like that focusing, um, because it, because VCs for the most part don't understand how marketing works, and so they think that the broader the target market, even right out of the gate, uh, the more money you're going to make. But in fact, the opposite is true. The more narrow your market is at the beginning, the faster you can build traction. And the key is 
to expand your market, the, the target market as you move along. Um, but you can't go after the whole thing all at once. But, you know, convincing a board to do that is often really hard. And and even convincing the founders will be like, you know, the pushback I always get is like, yeah, that, that sounds too small. Like, we're just, we're not going to make any money doing that. We're not going to, it sounds like a lifestyle business. I hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, you, you know, and then, and then a lot of times these companies end up, not selling anything because they can't decide on how to sell something more targeted. So these are really hard decisions to make. This is not marketing doesn't get to just cook this up and make the decision or product management doesn't just get to to decide, Hey, we're going to position it like this. This is a thing that needs to happen with input and alignment across the entire executive team. Cause everybody's got to be on board because we're literally shifting the guts of the business when we do this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the things I was wondering, because I could imagine a case where let's take your, I want to come back to the strategy thing you were just bringing up about the sort of the sequence of markets. Um, Let's come back to that in just a minute, but staying with this just a minute longer with the sort of the, the, how scary it is to do this repositioning. I was imagining a founder or, or someone who's very, very invested in a product or a service, whatever um, going through this and feeling like, Wow. Okay, I can see that this would work, but it feel I can I can almost see them feeling like this is this is this isn't our mission. This is what we set out to do this for, right? Like it this feels is as you said, it's completely right. different. Um what do you say to that person? Yeah, like it it's a thing again, everybody's gotta gotta buy into it. And and I don't I, I actually think it's a gut check thing. Like I recently did a workshop with a company. And there were two founders in the workshop, plus their whole executive team. And we're working through, you know, here's who loves your product. They compare you to this. Therefore, this is what you do. It's really good. Therefore, these are the people that you can win business from. Therefore, your position is this. And at the end of it, the one founder was really excited. And the other founder was, he said, you know, I get that's what we are. And I get fundamentally that's what we are and that's and that's where we're going to sell and whatever. But I got to tell you, as a founder, I'm not excited about that business. Oof. Wow. <laughs> and so, so what happened well, then? I don't know. I think, you know, founders got to have some conversations. <laughs> and the thing is, is like if you like in the workshops I do, like the companies already have traction. They're already on your way. Like in this case, they're a few million revenue. And so you got to make a decision. Like, are we going to attempt to be successful in this place where we know we can be successful, but I don't like that business. (laughs) Or do I say, you know what? I don't like that business. So we're not going to do that. We're going to go do something else. Or maybe we're going to split company and the guy that does want to do it will continue to do it. And the guy that does, it's going to go found something else. And, and it's, it's one of these things. Now, on the team, sometimes what you'll get, and that's a, that's kind of a founder perspective. Now, sometimes what you'll get on the team is a particular team member feels threatened by the new positioning. So, for example, um, I did one where um, we were having a conversation about, again, where does the company win and not win? And it became apparent that the sales team uh, was kind of selling all over the place, even though the product 
was really, really suited to big, big accounts. And when they got into smaller accounts, they had very strong competitors and they were much less likely to win a deal if they were in smaller accounts. But, and, and so I kept asking the question, I'm like, why are you chasing all these little accounts? Like you win. Every time you go to a big account, you win. Why are you chasing all these little accounts? And the answer to that question was, because that's where my sales team is comfortable. <laughs> mm. You're like, hmm. <laughs> so sometimes you do a shift in positioning and you don't have the right skills on the team to go do the thing that needs to get done. And that's a bummer, right? So then then you've either got to reevaluate skills on the team. Do I have the right people on the team? And can those people make the shift or not? And so sometimes you'll have a thing where someone on the team is just, they're not aligned because it's just not, it's not in their skill set or it's not in their interest area or there's, you know. Yeah. It seems like it really, it, not that, not that it has to every time, but that it, that positioning or repositioning can trigger a full blown business pivot. I mean, like from yeah. almost from the ground up, like this is a whole new, whole new ball yeah. game um, to, you know, to reference back to Steve Blank and all the lean startup stuff. Not always. Like a lot of times what you end up with is it's funny. A lot of the workshops I do, we get to the end and the team's a bit like, well, yeah, that's pretty much what we were doing before, but it isn't right. It's, it's sneaky. <laughs> it's like, and it, you know, and it is, it's like 80% the same, but that 20% matters, right? It's this tightening up on the definition of what customer are we going after or tightening up on, you know, when you guys were talking about the value proposition, you were talking about 10 things, but it's really just this one thing. And so sometimes yeah. what you've got is it doesn't feel like a big shift in strategy. It feels more like a shift in how we execute on the strategy because we're now a lot clearer on we're only going to go after these people. And when we do, we can hit them with just this thing and we'll win. Yeah, it really reminds me of... Um uh, another another book I, I've really enjoyed or thinker I've really enjoyed in the world of, of marketing and positioning, which is Seth Godin and yeah. in his book, This is Marketing. And, and if I was to boil that entire book down to one sentence, basically, I think it resonates a lot with your work, which is basically getting a really good answer to who's it for and what's right, it for. Right. And if you got those, like that kind of is the, that's the heart of yeah. everything. Like that, that's your, that's market, that's product, that's sales, that's, you know, yeah. etc. You know what? This has nothing to do with this, but you said Seth Godin, and I really want to tell my Seth Godin story, and I've never told it, so do I it. want to tell it right now. This is okay. a, this is a Seth Godin is an amazing person story. So he is, he is. So I, I met him a couple of times, but like way, way early in my career, like he totally wouldn't remember me. Um, so 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 we don't know each other. That's the the preamble of this is me and Seth don't know each other. And, um, and I was on a business trip a few months ago and, um, doing some work with a company that's way out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and I'm, and I flew in the night before, cause we're going to do this workshop and I'm sitting at the pub doing my email, drinking a beer. And so <laughs> this is me. And so I'm doing my email and I get this, I'm in my inbox and I get this email from Seth Godin and I'm like, what the what? <laughs> <laughs> and the subject line is on it is my Jack Trout story. Now, the background of this is um, the Bible of positioning. If you learn to do positioning in marketing school is this book called uh, Positioning the Battle for Your Mind by Al Rice and Jack Trout. And this 
You're like 1982, 1982, like before the internet <laughs> in the olden days. And it's still kind of the Bible of positioning. Like if you want to learn this, they still teach it in school. And the, but the thing that drives me crazy about it is it does this amazing job of talking about what positioning is. It gives a bunch of examples that these guys had worked on where they repositioned something from one thing to another thing. And then they kind of dug into that in a case study, but they didn't tell you how to do it. And so it was super mm-hmm. frustrating to me. So in my book, I take a little bit of a shot at those guys. Not really, but I basically like, you know, you should read that book, but don't expect that book to teach you anything about how to do it. Cause it is very deliberately structured not to like the idea is you're supposed to call those guys. They're going to do the positioning for you. And anyway, so I talk about that in the book. So I, so here I am, I'm at the pub. I get this email from Seth Godin and, and it says my Jack Trout story. I'm like, what the? <laughs> Gotta read that. Can't not open that. So I opened this email and, and Seth Godin says, you know, back in whatever year it was, I can't remember when he put out his, his first big book, which was called Permission Marketing. That was the book that made Seth Godin famous. He said when I was, and he had done a couple books before that, but that was the big one. And he says, when I was about to launch Permission Marketing, I, uh, reached out to Jack Trout to see if I could get him to give me a, a, a quote, like a reference quote for the book. Like, you know, you buy books and they have all these nice books. Yeah, like on yeah, the back people cover. have like pre-read the book and say, oh, this book is amazing, whatever. So he reached out to Jack Trout and sent him a pre-copy of the book and said, you know, would you like to endorse the book? And Jack Trout sent him this email back that said, uh, this book was stupid and it would never work. And that he should, and that he should, he should go and find some other line of work. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. <laughs> if for anyone who doesn't know that work, permission marketing, I mean, this, this is like a foundational, foundational like, I mean, this yeah. is like gospel sold, level. Sold a bajillion billion <laughs> copies. And, and he was like, that will never work. That's stupid. Go find something else to do with your life. And so, of course, you know, so, and then, so, so he tells that story in this email. He's, he writes me this story. And then he said, and, and, you know, so of course I put the book out and it was wildly successful and whatever, whatever. And then he says, he says, so I wanted to write you this email because I read your book. And as the self proclaimed actual person who knows what's good and what's not, I thought your book was very good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> That's awesome. What a cool email to now, get. What a thing. So what a thing. So there's a guy, arguably the world's most famous marketer, right? So, you know, one, it's amazing. It likes, you know, somehow he got a hold of my book. I have no idea. The guy probably reads 9 million books a day because he's super genius. But okay, somehow he gets a hold of my book and he reads it. But he sends me the email like he bothers to send me that email and he doesn't know me from Adam. He sends me that email just to just to be a good guy. There's nothing in it for him to do that. Nothing. And not only that, it's it's a classic example of positioning. (laughs) Something I'm going to work this into a talk. (laughs) But what's interesting is really good positioning positions you, but it also positions your competition. 
Good positioning does this. Like you sort of say, we're experts at this. And, you know, the other guys, they're just they're like general purpose. All right. So you're, so you're kind of doing this thing. And part of how you define yourself is how you define the competition. So interestingly, this story about Seth, that Seth Godin tells about Jack Trout, like not only does it accomplish the goal of you're just left with this idea, like Seth Godin is an awesome human being. But you're also left with the idea like Jack Trout, not so much. <laughs> I've had the, the chance to interact with Seth a few times. I did his uh, his alt MBA oh, program. Yeah. And uh, I got to say, he, he really is exactly the genuine, awesome human being. Like he's just a great oh, human being um, and a hell of a teacher. So uh, anyone who's interested in his work, I'd definitely check it out. And we'll, we'll link to all that stuff in the show notes. When you were telling that story, you mentioned that um, similarly, you can reposition things. You know, it can feel like you're going to too small of a market by by sort of going more narrow. And and there's always this concern about like, is that too small or whatever? I'm curious if you could talk to me a little bit about how this positioning process impacts product strategy, and, and in particular, maybe you could tell the story of the the uh, I think I think you described it as the weirdly excited investment bankers and the bowling ball strategy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's funny, like people, when they think about repositioning, the first thing they think about is we're going to shift the messaging. And often, you know, a good way to test a new position is to shift the messaging and arm your salespeople with it and see, does it work? Can I, can I sell stuff this way? But usually mm-hmm. there is a big shift in, in product strategy, particularly over the longer term. So, uh, mm-hmm. so this story is about, um, this company I worked for, and um, we were positioned in the enterprise CRM market. That was our positioning, and this was was course was around, but they were they were still focused on SMB. And at the time, there was this big big company in the valley called Siebel Systems. They were the big giant in the enterprise CRM market, and so. Not surprisingly, every time we had a conversation with a with a prospect, we'd say, hi, we do enterprise CRM. And they're like, how are you better than Siebel? And the answer to that question was, we pretty much weren't. So (laughs) in every way, they were better than us. Like they had 8,000 employees. I think it was employed 24, maybe. They had uh, 2 billion revenue. We were doing just over a million when I joined. They had uh, 400 customers. We had five or six. And um, But we had two things we thought were different. One was we had this feature that it gave you the ability to model a many, many relationship between people instead of companies, which no CRM even today lets you do this. Um, but And we used to always show it in demos. But the problem was, is we never really understood who cared about that. And we never really understood what mm. the value of it was. So we would go in and we'd show it in demos and we'd say, hey, and it looked really good. Like it's a demo good. So we'd show it in the demo and then the customer would say, hey, yeah, that looks really cool. So what do you use that for? And we'd be like, yeah. anything you want. Code for, we don't know. Just code for, you know, we have no idea, but it looks good in the demo. Um, so we weren't doing very well. And what happened to get us out of this rut, this was this was ages ago when I was pretty junior. Um, what happened to get us out of this rut uh, was we hired a new sales rep. And the reason we hired the sales rep was because the sales rep's buddy 
was the head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs. Like that's literally how he got the job. Okay. Like he came in and my CEO was like, give us one good reason to hire you. And the guy said, cause my buddy's the head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs. We're going to get you a meeting. And we were like, okay. <laughs> All right. Sounds good to me. And I did a ride along, which is kind of one of my favorite things to do as a VP marketing is to go along with the salespeople and see what happens in sales calls. And so I thought this will be a fun sales call. So I came and we go to the meeting and my rep does the demo and he gets to this part where he shows this many to many relationship thing. And the, and the head of investment bank at Goldman Sachs just loses his mind. He's like, Whoa, 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 whoa. Mm. are you telling me? That if two people sit on a board together, you can model that. And we're like, yeah. And he's like, so if two people like belong to the Harvard club, you can model that. We're like, yeah, yeah, we can. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he runs out. Like he literally leaves the meeting, runs down the hall, gets three guys that work with him, brings them back. And, and he's like, show them that thing. Show them that thing. Show that thing. And so we show him the demo of this thing. And the guys are the same thing. Like their eyes pop out of their heads and they're like, wait, 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 wait. So if two people used to work at a company together, but they don't work at the company together anymore, they work at different companies, you can model that in your database. We're like, yeah, yeah, we can. And they got so excited. These guys were all like literally in office, like four really senior investment banking guys in their suits and their freaking cufflinks, jumping up and down, like freaking out. Me and the rep were over in the corner going, (laughs) what the heck is going on? This is terrible. Like what just happened? And so anyway, so we we ended up closing a deal. And what we eventually figured out was in the way in their sales process, they have a thing called reason to call. And so what it is, is you go out and have a meeting with a super rich guy and talk to him about a bunch of things you want to sell. And then you go back to the office and you need a reason to call the next one. And this makes this really easy to do that I can look up and say, oh, this guy used to sit on a board with this other guy. I'm going to call him up and say, hey, you know John, don't you? Oh, yeah. Today we were talking about Tesla shares and blah, 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 blah. We should go for lunch. It's literally that. Uh, you guys are all excited because this gave them the, this solved this fundamental thing in their sales thing. So then we started selling it to investment bankers. And every time we showed the thing to investment banker, they freak out. So... All of a sudden, we go from selling nothing, basically, to, to stuffing a pipeline full of investment banks. But the important thing was we, we took a step back, and I kept making the argument, like, look, we're not enterprise CRM. That's fundamentally not what we are, because we only win in investment banking. So if we had positioned ourselves as CRM for investment bankers... It might solve, like our biggest problem was it's really hard to get a meeting with the head of investment banking and investment bank, right? So if we position ourselves yep. like this, one, maybe they would call us. And two, it would make it more obvious how we were different than Siebel because we're always in this competitive head-to-head against Siebel. And so we finally convinced ourselves that was a good idea, but the board hated it. So we took it and the investors mm. were like, look, we didn't write you a check to be some niche little lifestyle business. How many investment banks are there? And we'll never make money doing this and blah, blah, blah. And we, at the time, we were big Jeffrey Moore people at the time. Like, talk about okay. influential books. Like, Je- Crossing the Chasm, that was, in, in this company, that was our Bible. We're all crossing the chasm. 
So in Crossing the Chasm, Jeffrey Moore describes this thing called bowling pin strategy, which I still think if you're selling enterprise B2B, this is the only way to win in a market. And basically the way he describes it is, look, first you got to define a lead pin and you, and you go after and that first lead market. And once you're dominating that lead market, which is like your lead pin, then you go after the adjacent markets. And then once you're dominating those, then you go after the adjacent market. So I knock down the lead pin. Then I get the pins beside that. Then I get the pins beside that. And the next thing you know, I got strike. <laughs> so we went in and we literally drew the bowling pin thing on the whiteboard for the board and said, this is what we're going to do. Our lead pin is this department inside investment banking. And then after we get that, we're going to knock over these other three departments in investment banking. And after we get that, we're going to do retail banking. And after we win retail banking, then we can win insurance because there's a lot of overlap between retail banking and insurance. And if we do that, then we are a massive company. And then we're going to go take the fight to Siebel and we're going to beat them because we'll be big enough to do it at that point. And that convinced the board that we should do the shift. And so we, um, in terms of product strategy, it was interesting. Like at the beginning, we didn't change much, but we changed a lot over the course of a year because we were now on this, instead of trying to be feature function comparable to everything that Siebel was doing, which we never could have been. Like, I mean, they had a head start on us. We were, we were instead trying to be with this vision of first banking and first investment banking, then retail banking, then whatever. So it was all within this lens of financial services. Our banker's going to love this. Our commercial bank's going to love this. Our retail bank's going to love this. Could we use this for insurance? And so our whole product roadmap got much more focused on these things that we could do that were really particular to those kinds of customers. And then, and then um, on the marketing and sales side, we got really focused on investment banking. Like I tell people about how focused we got. We used to have, we, if we had a new rep, we would train them on investment banker vocabulary. <laughs> like, here's what a Chinese wall is. <laughs> and we okay. would teach the reps to go in and like sprinkle this vocabulary throughout their sales pitch. Um, we had demo data that was very specific to investment banking. And we did this very specific investment banking scenario in our demos where we, we did this reason to call thing. Like, okay, you're doing a thing and then you go out and then you go back and look at what you can see and all this stuff. And we then positioned Siebel as like this general purpose generic. So, you know, we'd go in and say, hey, we're CRM for investment banking. And the bankers would look at us kind of squinty eyed and be like, so wait, don't you compete with Siebel? And we're like, oh, Siebel. Like before we would have never said that. <laughs> we'd come in there all confident and go, Siebel. We love those guys. They're fantastic. Look at them. So big, so much revenue, so many customers. They're just like the world's greatest generic general purpose CRM for like call centers. I think they sell a lot of call centers. Call centers in India and stuff, they all use their stuff. They make a lot of money doing that. Not you, Wolf of Wall Street. You need something <laughs> for you, let me show you the thing. And then we should, you know, and then we'd show them this demo. And 
and we would just get out of this complete head to head against those guys because we were positioning them as like, yeah, they're big. Yeah. They're successful for everywhere except you. And if you want to be, mm-hmm. are, is your business like a call center? No, it ain't. <laughs> your business is nothing like a call center. <laughs> um, and so anyways, and so the end of that story is we grew really fast. Like we went from 2 million to about 80 million in a year and a half, like about 18 18- Wow. And then um, we were starting to branch out in other parts of banking and whatever. And Siebel got all stressed out about us and they came and acquired us for 1. 1. 1.7, 1.7 Canadian, 1.3 billion U.S. dollars. <laughs> Still a large yeah, amount of money. <laughs> and, 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 you know, big amount of money. In fact, at the time, because this was, you know, a long time ago, but at the time we were the largest the largest acquisition of a Canadian software company ever at the time. And our board thought we weren't going to make any money with that little niche lifestyle business thing. <laughs> I, God, what a good story that I have to say that is one of the best actual examples I've ever heard of product strategy. Uh, Cause one of the best ways I've heard product strategy defined concisely uh, is by, I think it's from Marty Kagan. And he talked about product strategy is basically the sequence of product market fits that yes. you go down in order to fulfill yes. your vision, right? It's like, cool, we're going to have a fit here and then we're going to do this one and then this one. And maybe you do, maybe you do it vertically. Maybe you do it geographically, whatever, but it's this sort of sequential way of thinking. And that like what you just described, that is the, the clearest example I've actually heard of that. So thank you. I can only, I mean, what a ride to, I mean, 40 X revenue growth in less than a year and a half. That is more than hyper growth in the book. There's a point you make that, and I'm going to get the words wrong, but something like the way you position and talk about the product isn't the product, right? It, it shames, it shapes how you, how the product is experienced, but it's sort of, it seems like that's a way around the identity, the, the threatening feeling of positioning where it's like, okay, cool. Yes, we're going to take over all of enterprise CRM, but for right now, we're just going to talk about investment banks. That's right. It's not the same vision. Exactly. So positioning and vision are different. So my question is this, as you're going down that sequence of, of verticals, right? You said we're going to do investment banks and then we're going to do, you know, retail banks or whatever. Do you, are you reinventing the positioning at every step along the way? And, and do you have, like, do you have to, as you add on more and more verticals, do you have to like have a new positioning that encompasses all of them or do you position it differently for each and each and every one of those verticals? Yeah. So I, so the way it, 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 the answer to that is it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. But um, in that particular case, um, the idea was that the positioning was going to evolve over time for the entire uh, company and the product specifically. So we did not intend to have different products for banking versus insurance versus whatever. We were going to have different add-on modules. There were going to be some special things we could sell you, but the base product was going to be the same thing. And so the way we envisioned the positioning shifting was we were going to go from CRM for investment banks to CRM for banks to CRM for financial services. That was the idea. And mm. so we were just going to widen the aperture as we widened the target market. And then once we got to that, then we were going to be CRM for enterprise. We were going right back to where we started on how we raise money and the whole bit. Like we were going to get there. It's just that for right now, it made it clear where we could win right at that moment. Now, there's an interesting set of problems you get into where 
you'll have companies that have um, multiple products, for example. So if, if so let's say I'm a startup and I only have one product, the positioning for the product and the company is generally the same because I only have one thing. And so it's the same. It's, it's kind of like if you think of um, Basecamp, you know, Basecamp, the company, Basecamp, the product, it's the same thing. There is, like, yeah, don't differentiate between them. Um, Slack's a little bit like this, right? It's Slack. It's like they only have one thing and they're selling you Slack and that's it. Um, but then you get this thing where you have multiple products and sometimes those products are really different. And so then you got to decide, is it um, if those products are different and they, they serve different purposes and sometimes they even have different audiences, how do you position the company and, and, the, and the products within the company? And generally the way you want to do that is you have kind of an umbrella positioning that says we are the people that provide this and it's, it's, it's everything underneath. And then you have this product by product positioning that fits underneath that. And so my example of this is when I worked at IBM, uh, every product that we sold, if you built a sales deck, the sales deck would start with why buy something from IBM? And then so, so if you think about the product, last product I worked at at IBM was this little thing in the database division. So it would be, mm. you know, we're IBM. We do hardware, software services. That's why you want to buy from us. And there'd be a spiel about that. And then it'd be like, okay, let's talk about software from IBM. Why do you care about middleware? We're the leaders in middleware. We do this. And this, this is why you care, right? And then it was like, and then I was in the database division. And then it was like, okay, now let's talk about databases at IBM. Did you know we invented the relational database? Let's talk about that. And then, and then we would say, and then we're here to talk to you today about this thing it sits you know this is a product inside the database and then i would position that and and that influenced my thinking on this a lot because the 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 way we thought about it at ibm was if that product that product should be made stronger within that bigger company story if it's not and the company story does not add any value to the product and it's easier to position it without positioning the company first. And why the heck is it part of the company? We should sell it off. Which I thought was, was good thinking. So the idea was, is you exist underneath this bigger entity, the bigger entity should lend value to the product. So you should start with the bigger frame of reference, then the frame of, and then go down to the product thing and see, you know, we're actually experts at this bigger thing, Okay, now within that context, we built this product and it kicks ass, and here's why. No, that makes so much sense. That's perfect. So let's go back to the story you were just talking about with with after Siebel acquired that yeah. company, um, and and you know the bubble that popped, right? And so um, rough time. And and you know when we were getting ready for this conversation, obviously right now we're in a time a very uncertain time for people, right? The the COVID nineteen pandemic has disrupted everything. And you know in the book you mentioned revisiting your positioning every six months or so whenever anything major happens that will affect how customers perceive the market. Whether so, what I'm curious about is first of all, besides a big economic downturn like the one we're in right now, um, what are what are the other like common cases that are going to trigger a repositioning? And then how should we think about that when we, when we're in a situation like this? 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's funny because I'm always talking about this, that you have to keep an eye on your positioning and you have to keep checking in on it every six months because things can change. And it's funny, like it's been so long since we've had a like big economic downturn that I'd say to people, like sometimes you'll have a big economic downturn, you know, and the 20 year olds are all looking at me like, what's an economic downturn, grandma? <laughs> 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 and I'm like, I'm You're you, like it'll sonny, happen. it ain't fun. <laughs> now or now, now we have that. So um, so th- there's a handful of things that can really throw a wrench into your positioning, right? So one of them is we're getting a crash course in it right now, right? Economic forces beyond your control have suddenly thrown all the cards up in the air. And most importantly, what it's done is shifted the priorities of my customers. And because their priorities have shifted, then potentially my competitors have shifted and my value needs to shift in relationship to that. So that, and sometimes that economic downturn can do that. Um, sudden change in, um, in government regulations can do it. We saw it a little bit with GDPR. We certainly saw it in banking and insurance when we had things like Basel II and HIPAA and things like that came in. I worked at a company that did mid-market ERP and there were a bunch of regulations came in around how you did food handling and that threw the ERP business a total wrench. Um, so sometimes that happens. If you're smallish, uh, sometimes, sometimes what can happen is a big competitor makes a kind of surprise jump into your market. And that can often really upset uh, a value proposition um, and, and requires you to rethink, you know, where do we win and how. And so all these things can do. And so if we're talking about an economic downturn specifically, what we see Typically, and I'm talking about B2B because that's this is my background. So if, if you're selling to businesses, the thing you got to check in on is has your have your customers priorities shifted? If so, how and how do we fit into that? And so one of the common things you'll see, and this happened to me both times in economic downturn, is the companies I was selling to we were selling on a value proposition around growth. Like, Mm. you know, I I talk about this sometimes, like when you sell stuff to businesses, you basically only have kind of two value propositions. If you abstract it all the way out, it's like either our product helps you make money or our, our product helps you save money. Now, when times are good, you know, nobody's worried about saving money, but everybody wants to grow. So everybody's value proposition and their position is all around. You want to buy our stuff because we're going to help you grow. We're going to help you get new customers. We're going to help you expand. We're going to grow, 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 revenue, revenue, revenue. So, but then you'll get something like this happens, right? So all of a sudden, massive, sudden economic downturn. And not all customers, but some of your customers might actually be taking a step back and saying, oh, man, like we can't grow right now. We literally can't because we can't get new business right now. There is no new business to be had. Like we can't grow at all. We cannot. Therefore, our priorities have all shifted to we're just going to re- try to retain the revenue we've got. So they shift all their resources and their marketing budgets and sales budgets and everything gets shifted to customer retention and cost control. 
So everybody does a layoff. Everybody's trying to drive cost out of the business. Everybody's trying to keep a hold of the customers they've got. Customer loyalty becomes this really big thing. Some of the customers will have the opportunity to do expansion in existing accounts, but greenfield stuff tends to kind of go away. So here's you. You're a vendor to these companies, and you are in there going, grow, grow, grow. This thing's going to help you grow. And all of a sudden, that is like irrelevant to their priorities right now. Irrelevant. (laughs) Because they're like... Growth isn't mm-hmm. even in my top 10 things I'm going to do this year. So yeah, try to survive. we're trying to survive. <laughs> and so you, you're going to have to figure out, do I have a helps you survive value prop in my product for these people? And if not, you're either going to have to find some people <laughs> that you do have a value prop for, uh, or you're going to have to get a value prop for, you know, helps you survive. Let's let's stick with that B two B case, right? Where you got like the growth the the growth value propositioning, yeah. and then the survival yeah. one. Do you advise people when they're going through a positioning process? Should you like prepare backup ones in advance, or just be ready to adapt as needed? Well, no. See, we don't usually do that because the idea is you don't know you don't know what's going to shift, and you don't know how you're going to react to it. And so the the best thing to do is to just be keeping your pulse on it, right? Like. And every six six months or so, you're checking in and saying, is this still where we win? Have our competitors changed? Like the, the weirdest thing about this economic downturn is the suddenness of it. Because previous mm, yeah. economic downturns, you know, it took us a few quarters before we even admitted like, yes, we're in a recession. <laughs> yeah. Now it's like three yeah, weeks. Yeah, this one was like, you know, start of the week we weren't, end of the week we were. Like, what? That Nobody's ever seen one go this fast. So I think if we always had ones like this, then yeah, we probably would want some in our back pocket. But usually <laughs> what happens is there's this gradual thing starts to happen and you start seeing a different competitor pop up. You start seeing... Um, your value proposition just isn't resonating the way it used to. You start getting this feedback from sales like, you know what? We sell to these. We used to be able to close these deals really easily, and now we don't. But these other ones seem to be easy. And these are all signs like we should check in on this and see where we're at Hmm. and do a positioning thing again. So we don't normally get this like, boom, into the brick wall. (laughs) Like This one is so remarkable that way. Like even 2008 financial yeah. crisis, re- like it really took us several quarters before, you know, a lot of us were forced to react. Yeah, so that's such an interesting that way. point. And the crazy thing about this one, too, is we don't know how it ends. Like in, in a normal recession, you know, we, we're kind of gradually sliding into it and then we gradually come out. What happens at the end of this one? Nobody knows. So I get a lot of people asking me, like, look, I could shift my value proposition and shift my positioning. But what if it what if I got to shift it all back in three months because we all go back and my my customers priorities will all shift back. And the answer to that is. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what your customers think. So if you're in there talking to your customers and they're saying, look, um, we've shifted the priorities and the time frame for that is, you know, 12 months, 18 months, then you got to shift. Like you got to shift to follow them in there. But there are lots of companies out there that are like, we're shifting priorities, but it's, you know, this is a 30, 60 day thing. And then we're going to wait and see. 
And then we're going to check in and then we're going to decide, do we shift the longer term thing? If your customers are talking like that, then you should act like that too. I would not go and rush and do a big repositioning because your customers aren't there yet. So I think you've got to follow your customer's lead on this one in terms of how fast you want to adjust and what that time horizon looks like. And this one is so weird. Like we just don't know how we're going to come out. So you got to follow your customer's strategic planning on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a good point about the don't, you know, if if they're not making that hard change right now, hold off on doing a full reposition because like you'll, you'll just also create whiplash for your own team. Like you'll just drive everyone internally crazy. And frankly, there are, everyone's already stressed enough. Exactly. And there's lots of ways to run things, you know, to run a, a slight shift in value proposition as a campaign and not a repositioning. So, you know, you've got a short term value proposition that works for a certain kind of person. And in this moment right now, you can run that like a campaign. You don't have to actually say, "Okay, look, we're reevaluating the whole strategy. We don't go after these people anymore. We do whatever you can say. Look, short term, the next 60 days, we're going to run a little campaign. We're going to throw a little bit of money, a little bit of resources on communicating this thing to these people. But our big chunky positioning does not change. The strategy has not changed. We're just doing a little opportunistic campaigning here around this stuff. Um, And I'm seeing a lot of companies do that. One of the things we're seeing across a lot of... um a lot of disciplines like in, in marketing, in product, uh, those two, those two especially, um, and I'm assuming beyond that, but is a sort of a return to fundamentals. And so I'm curious, what are you, what are you seeing there? Like, what are you noticing? And, and also I'm curious, like, do you think the principles and the fundamentals of positioning change? Like will positioning be different in 20 years or will just the way you do it be different? Yeah. It's a neat question. When we talk about something like positioning, You know, I think the underpinning of that, like you need a customer segmentation, you need to understand value propositions, you need to understand competitive alternatives, that jobs to be done stuff. I don't think that changes. I think that stays the same. How you get it done might, right? Like how I figure out what my best customers are doing and how I figure out what my real competitive alternatives are. That changes. Sure, it does. Changes all the time. But the fundamental underpinnings on this stuff, I don't think it changes. I think we're seeing a little bit of return to basics right now because I feel like the previous five, six years, um, there was a lot of enthusiasm for um, things that were really, really kind of growth at any cost, like what I would call sort of growth hacking, although you know, not there's a lot of concepts in growth hacking that I think are actually really useful and good. But this idea mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm just trying to juice the numbers. <laughs> yeah, I think people have seen how insustainable that is, that, you know, that lead quality is actually a thing. And sometimes you want fewer, higher quality leads as opposed to just the biggest number of leads I can get and the most amount of traffic I can get. And they, I saw a 2000% increase in whatever, like people, you know, we've now been doing that long enough to see that those businesses don't sustain and sustainable growth comes from taking a step back, really reevaluating. How do I get tight on this stuff? Not the opposite. And so, and that's forcing everybody to go back and actually think about 
segmentation and targeting. Like I make a lot of fun of the concept of product market fit because I think it's Mm. total bullshit because of the way most people use it. Like, like I, yesterday I'm on Twitter and, and some guy is tweeting, do you think Slack has product market fit? Yes or no. That's his survey. And I'm like 300 million daily active users. You don't think they have a fit with a market? <laughs> yeah, they're doing like, something right. <laughs> the, the, the problem is with the concept of product market fit is nobody understands market, Right. They don't understand that there's product market. You can have product market fit in multiple products in multiple markets at one time. What market? So I can make the argument Mm -hmm. that Slack has very good product market fit in some markets and they have terrible product market fit in others. Do they have good product market fit for remote learning for your grade six kid? No, it's terrible. I don't know why they're even trying to use that there. (laughs) Like it is just a bad tool for that. Does it have product market fit for webinars? You know, maybe right. So the thing is, is if you if you don't think if you just think of market as this like amorphous thing, like then product market fit as a concept is useless. It's useless. I don't know mm-hmm. how to drive towards it if I don't know what market is. And most of the time, when people talk about product market fit, they would be better to think about something that they could action on. Like, so, uh, so people will say, Oh, well, if you think it's so stupid, April, what's your idea for an alternative? And I'm like, I'll tell you what my idea for an alternative is. What you want is an actionable customer segmentation, right? A customer segmentation that I can go build marketing plans on. Cause if the whole point of product market fit is, gee, when I know I have product market fit, that's when I step on the gas in marketing and sales. Listen, I've been the person at the gas pedal in marketing, right? That's me. I'm the VP marketing. And if you come and tell me, yay, we have product market fit, time to step on the gas VP marketing. The first thing I'm going to say is what market? Who? And if you can't answer that question in a way that's actionable, that I can build campaigns on, we ain't there yet, buddy. I don't care whether you think you got product market fit or not. I can't do anything with it. So, so I don't think product market fit operationally is, is useful. But I do think if you said, figure out a segmentation that we can then go and attack from a marketing and sales perspective, there's enough detail in it that I could make a list. I could go after those people. I could structure campaigns. Well, now I got something. Now I can put my foot on the gas. If you got that, then you got something. So product market fit, I don't know. All right. I want to um, sort of shift into the last part of the conversation here with a couple of rapid fire questions. The questions are short. Your answers can, sure. don't have to be. They can be however long you want to be. What's a small change you've made in recent memory? And that could be, you know, a week, a year, whatever. What's a small change you've made in recent memory that's had an outsized impact on how on your life, how you work, how you show up? Uh well, I'll tell you, I um when I started consulting, um, I I wanted to get really clear on what my goals were for the consulting business. And at the beginning, I was I was just trying to do good work and make some money. You know, I was, you know, at the beginning I was like, I'm just trying to build a business. And, um, and, and after doing it for about a year, I went on vacation. I was sitting on the beach and I was having this thought process of, what does perfect work look like for April? <laughs> you know, like I'm not having one of those hmm. things. And I was like, and I made some decisions about 
how like up until then I was a little bit focused on the money. Like I was like, I, you know, I'm trying to build a good business here and make some good money. And the, one of the things I got really clear on was that the money was, you know, I, I want to get paid good money. I want to get paid fair money for my work, but the money is actually way down the list of things that were important. And it was like, I want to do good work where I feel like I'm making an impact with good people. And so I started doing a lot more saying no to work because I didn't like the people or I didn't like what the people were doing. I just didn't agree with it. So, um, and that has made a really big difference in my, uh, in everything actually. Like it, like it, the, the immediate impact that it had was all my clients are lovely. Like they're just lovely. Like everybody I work with is just, they're just the most lovely people. I would like to have a dinner party and have it be just my clients. They're like the most lovely people in tech. I, I can't get over <laughs> how lovely they are. And, and then that's really changed my enjoyment of doing what I do. And the interesting thing is the side benefit of that is you end up making way more money because you, because you only work with people that you're all getting along. I filter really hard. Like we literally don't do anything together unless I'm sure we're going to smash it. So then we smash it and then everybody's like, Oh, April's amazing. You get more of these people in your pipeline and it's this virtuous cycle. And so I think my, um, my decision to sort of only work with people that I kind of want to hang out with. And I think we're going to do good work together has made a significant difference like to my whole life, basically. Good for you. Good for you. I love that. Okay. So who or what has had a, big influence on you, like shaped how you see things, how you think, how you show up? You know, it's funny. I get this question a lot about like, did I have any mentors when I was, um, you know, younger? And it's funny, I I didn't. Um, and I don't know why I didn't have any mentors. But looking back, like I had some very good bosses, but I wouldn't consider them mentors really. Like they were more just trying to make sure I didn't mess their shit up. It's like my guy saying, why are you doing that stuff? You know, like he, he was just a good boss and maybe not a mentor. Um, but I spent a lot of time reading books about marketing and stuff because at the beginning I was in marketing and running a marketing team and I literally didn't know what I was doing. And so the, some big influential books I read, like, you know, we talked about Four Steps Epiphany. We talked about Crossing the Chasm. More recently, uh, Challenger Sale has really impacted my thinking about particularly relevant if it's enterprise B2B go-to-market stuff. And then more recently, as a consultant, again, because I'm I'm really on this thing about, you know, what's April's perfect work look like? I'm looking at people that I think are ahead of me on that one. And I'm trying to figure out how to learn from them. So Bob Mesta, for example, is one of those people, you know, that I, that I, you know, I love talking to him because I think, I think Bob has figured this out. I think he's doing his perfect work and, and he really enjoys it. He works with great people. He he charges fair money for it, you know, and I kind of look at Bob and I think, yeah, Bob's got this figured out. Um, I met Alex Osterwander oh, at a at a conference recently, and he I don't know him as well, but I kind of feel the same thing uh, um, 
about him and his mm-hmm. work, you know, that he's his work is somewhat analogous to mine because uh, he's doing this more sort of strategy type stuff. And um, and I, I like what he's doing. So I like looking at him. So right now I'm looking for people like that, people that do work like what I do, but seem to really care about the quality of what they do and the output of it. And, you know, and seem to be good, happy people that because I'm, I'm going for this, you know, good, happy April in the future thing, too. <laughs> I like that. Well, April, first of all, thank you so much for coming and hanging out with me today and sharing your amazing wisdom and experience. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, just in closing, do you have any requests of the listener? Sheila, cut yourself some slack because we're in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> and I don't know if we will be when you read this. <laughs> uh, this has been my, this has been my, I have all these people I mentor, you know, and, and all my calls have been like this. Like everybody's like, I'm not working as hard as I should be. And I'm not doing this. And I'm like, we're literally into a, the middle of a life and death global pandemic coupled with a global recession. And people are really stressed out. And I think that if people think that everyone's going to be 100% productive right now, they're nuts. We're not. And I think we all just have to say, we're not, man. I'm going to be at least 15% of my brain power right now is going to be consumed with, you know, is my little old mother going to make it through this thing? Because if she gets this, it's not going to be good. You know, so I think we all need to cut ourselves some slack at this particular juncture. And, you know, don't worry if you're not hitting it at 110% right now, because trust me, none of us are. I, I especially need to hear that. So thank you. I've been, I've been beating myself up about that one. So <laughs> There you go. There you go. Take a day off, man. We deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, April, again, thank you so much for being here. It's been a lot of fun hanging out today and a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.